0: Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 48 through 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So all men are like grass and all their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever, would you pray with me, please father we're um, we're glad to be here today uh, glad to be able to gather uh, as we do in freedom and comfort we 're glad to see one another and to meet new people we 're glad Father, for the opportunity to sing. And um, and simply to be here in your house, to look into your word. Most of all, we're glad for the promise that we have from that word, that whenever even just a couple gather together in your name, you're right there in our midst. So it's our prayer today that you would make yourself known to us. That you would reveal yourself through your word this day. That you would so work in our hearts and our minds that um, we might better understand who you are and your truth. Lord, we thank you for this tremendous gift that you've given us in your word. And we want to honor you in your word and through your word as we open our hearts to you. And Father, as for me, I I do pray that you would allow me to disappear behind the wonderful cross of Jesus Christ, that He and He alone would be exalted in our midst this day. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Michelangelo's Pieta sculpture depicting Mary holding the body of Jesus after the crucifixion is really quite interesting and interesting in a number of different ways. For example, the scene is not recorded anywhere in the Bible. It is possible that it occurred, but no one can say for certain since the scriptures themselves are silent. What the Bible does tell us is that uh, the body of Jesus was given to two men who were distant followers of the Lord, and yet who were influential people in their society, and they took him, And they buried him according to the custom of the Jews and that uh, some, not all or not even a majority of his closest followers uh, saw where he was laid. And yet that image is so vividly stamped in the mind of many people who have seen that work of art that they assume that it represents a Reality, and it would surprise them to learn that it may really not have happened at all and that it might have its origin simply in the imagination of the artist. And the sculpture is also vastly out of proportion, showing a diminutive Jesus held by in arms and on the lap of a rather too-large-for-life Mary, but that only becomes apparent as you examine the statue closely. The overall effect is simply one of beauty and power, inspiring a sense of awe and of sympathy for the mother and the son. And the details of the carving, too, are so well-conceived that even the folds that are carved in the stone look soft. And just as i 've done here, sculpture can be evaluated in a number of different ways. It can be considered historically. Did it really happen, or artistically what 's the effect on the viewer? Technically, how is each stroke of the chisel applied to uh, get the different effects, or even as an engineer might uh, 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 look at it uh, how true to life are the dimensions? You could describe it from different angles you could talk about what it looked like from the front and the back, from each side, down from the top, or even laying on the ground looking up. And a description viewed from one angle might sound different when compared to a description of that uh, same statue from a different angle. And yet all of those things really are a description. All of those evaluations really would be talking about that one work of art and would be accurate even though they might seem disconnected describing or talking about reality is like that it's not always easy and here we're talking about one inanimate object a statue and we can see how complex it can be to talk about and it can even be more challenging when the subject is something like the will of God which is what we've been looking at for the last number of weeks now. So our topic has been, how do we discover God's will, both for our life and for the smaller things, the twists and turns of our existence? And we've mentioned a number of things uh, that God uses to disclose his will to us. Uh, There is his word, and also we need to be serving in a church, and there is the commitment of the whole self uh, uh, in obedience. Why should God reveal something new to us if we're not doing what we know already that we ought to do. And there is a discernment that comes from uh, an abounding love for one another and for God. And each of those things may sound like something different, almost as if we have to figure out which one of those to choose in order to determine God's will. But the truth is they all tell us about the same thing just from different aspects. Discovering God's will really occurs in relationship, uh, our relationship with God and therefore our relationship with others. And all of those things that we've mentioned are simply aspects of that relationship. And when that relationship is as it should be, God uses those things to disclose his will to us. Now today, we're going to look at another one of those things. It's something that tells us about our relationship to God, or at least it should tell us more about it. Uh, We may, in fact, fall short in this area and need to make some changes in our life and in our thinking. And that really is all the more likely, uh, because the thing we're going to examine This morning is so hard. It's not the kind of thing that we find comfortable uh, to talk about, and it goes against the grain of our culture. And I believe it really is greatly misunderstood in the church today. The thing we're talking about today is the fear of the Lord. And it is an aspect of our relationship with God, and as such, it really does bear on our ability to discern God's will but it's not one that we talk about often. The passage that we're going to look at this morning does talk about it, and I think it will help us to better understand uh, the fear of the Lord and what it has to do with God's will. So I want to ask you to join me in Psalm chapter twenty-five, where we'll be looking at verses through twelve through thirteen. If you have your Bible, join me there, or you can look on the screen on either side of me. So The Psalms are poetry, and we're going to begin by reading the first line of the couplet in chapter 12, which is really a question, who then are those who fear the Lord? Now, if you were to pose that question on a Sunday morning in a typical church, many believers might respond by saying something like, uh, well... Those who fear God are really those who don't understand him. They don't know just how much he loves them. And they might even add the passage that says, perfect love casts out all fear. There they would be responding, I think, to our culture's picture of God as sitting in heaven with a kind of lightning bolt ready to smite us if we mess up and We know that picture is not true, and the fear that comes from that's not a good thing because it's not based in fact, and we don't want people to live under that kind of fear, which really is unproductive and can drive people away from God. So if you were to clarify what you meant by asking, well, I thought the fear of the Lord was a good thing. And they might respond, oh, yes, in the the Old Testament times it was a good thing, but not now, not uh, in uh, our day, not in the New Testament, not since Jesus came. We don't need to fear God since Jesus came. And the problem here is clearly, I think, a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches on this subject. You see, the fear of the Lord is taught in the New Testament too. Jesus himself tells us we ought to fear God. In chapter 12 of Luke, he says, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Of course, some people would argue, yeah, but that was before the resurrection and Of course, then we would have to turn to some other passages. So we might look to the book of Acts, which talks about the church in Acts chapter 9, and we're told there that living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it, that is the church, increased in numbers. Or Paul's instruction to the Philippian church, continue to work out your salvation with fear, And trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. Or Peter, when he says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Or in the book of Revelation, where the eternal gospel is described in these words, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. See, the fear of the Lord really is not merely an Old Testament phenomena, and it is a mistake to think it is. In fact, the psalmist's approach to God is very much the same as ours. He approaches God very much the same way we do. And if you were to look at the layout of this psalm, you would see that the psalmist declares, he begins by declaring his trust in God. Two different times he does so. His hope in God, that God is his Savior, that God is merciful and loving, that God is good, and that God is good and upright. And he requests that God would reveal his ways and guide him and remember to be merciful and love him and to forgive him their sins and to remember him according to their love and forgive him. And he extols God's virtues that he's good and upright and he guides and instructs and teaches and all his ways are loving and faithful. And all of that happens before we get to the passage about fearing God. And after that, the psalmist spends the rest of his ink asking for God's great grace and mercy with a closing prayer to the nation of Israel. And from all of that, I think we can conclude that the psalmist's thoughts about God are not very different from our own, with the possible exception that his thoughts include the concept of fear, and ours often don't. So we tend to think uh, that the psalmist brings to the table, if I can put it that way, all the things that happened before the coming of Christ. But we believe, don't we, that the Old Testament saints are saved by faith just as we are, and that even if they didn't fully understand it, that they're saved by looking forward to the cross, just as we're saved by looking backward to that same cross you know, their faith isn't all that different. The quality of it isn't. It was, after all, a saving faith. And, and again, we might wonder if they began their journey by fearing God and then they proceeded to faith. But really, a little reflection shows that things aren't quite so tidy as all that. First, Many people have come to the cross while on this side of the cross uh, through the avenue of fear. Martin Luther is a a prime example of someone like that, but there are many others. And and we can't say that people in the Old Testament didn't bypass that fear to come to faith. Daniel and his three friends are examples of that. Nowhere in the book, uh, in the Old Testament, we told that they feared God Although I I believe they really did if we understand that fear rightly. See, like it or not, understand it or not, accept it or not, fear really is a part of our relationship with God here and now. It's not something just in the Old Testament, nor is it an just an avenue to faith in the New Testament. Here and now, it exists alongside of our faith in our relationship with God. At least it should. So if that's true, what do we do with the passages that say perfect love casts out all fear and others that are like it? Well, to begin with, maybe we would say, well, let perfect love do that, but we better not do that. Paraphrasing George McDonald, uh, one of my favorite writers, he said, we don't help people by teaching them not to fear God before we teach them to love him. But more than that, we can say it really is a process. That perfect love is in a process of casting out fear, but we haven't arrived yet, and probably we don't ever quite get there in this life. So we can, we can serve God without fear here and now if we're walking with God, but because we're yet sinners, we still are in need of God's work in our lives and fear ought not be very far away from us. You see, if we sin, Fear is really the appropriate response to God, and it should drive us to him for forgiveness, and it can help us to avoid sin in the first place. And God is just plain bigger than we are, and there's a sense in where fear is appropriate even in that. Now, there are a couple more things I need to say before we can go forward in the passage and about this concept of fear. First, I, I have to say there are several... Uh, different objects of fear. I mean, we can fear humans, we can fear governments, we can fear nature, we can fear events, and we can fear God. And the only proper object of fear for the believer is God. We are to fear no one and no thing but God alone. And uh, having said that, uh, I acknowledge, and you would too, that we can't control our emotional response to the things in our world. But we can control how we respond to them and how we act on those emotions. Secondly, there really are different kinds of fear. There's a fear of the unknown. There's this uh, unsettled feeling that we have in unfamiliar circumstances which could be called fear. There's abject terror. And there's a fear of God. And, And sometimes, People fear God in the wrong way because they misunderstand him, and they live in a kind of terror or, or horror about God, which isn't good. But the, but the fear of the Lord, as it's found in the Bible, is healthy, and it's clean, and it's not burdensome at all. And finally, we need to note one more thing, that the fear of the Lord is not an emotion. At least it's not just an emotion. It is really, even before it's an emotion, it's a choice, it's a decision we make. So let me tell you how it kind of operates in my life, at least one of the ways. Sometimes I'm faced with the temptation. And that temptation is strong. And so I I begin and I start thinking about what would happen if I gave in to that. I start thinking about the pain and the sorrow and the hurt that it would bring to my family, my wife, my children, the people that I love, the people of this church, the name of Christ, what it would do to me. I take time and I try to remember that feeling of guilt that we've all experienced and we've done things that we shouldn't have done. And you think about that and remember how awful that feels, and then I, I, uh, I, I think you know, no matter what it is, it's not going to satisfy. It's not going to. It's not going to put an end to it. It'll just be something else that follows, and, and 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 that is an exercise. It's a decision, and it's a decision based on who. God is, and that's what the fear of God looks like. You see, we never get away with sin, never. We can confess it and repent of it. We don't always feel its full uh, uh, consequences, but we never get away with it. And if you try to hide it, you can be sure, as the Scripture says, your sin will find you out. And it's especially true for pastors. But it's not just true for pastors, it's true for each and every one of us. You see, no one ought to live in, in abject terror. But the fear of God really is a healthy part of our relationship with Him. It's not the only part, it's not supposed to be the main part. But we see in the psalm that it is a part of that relationship. And so it needs to be a part of our relationship with him, too. We don't think that way. Some of you, I think you're sitting there saying, I've never even thought about this. And yet there it is in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it really ought to be a part of our relationship. And so some people, when they when they realize that, they begin trying to talk about this truth, and they say something like this. They say, well, we better do better to think about the fear of God as something like awe or respect. And, and, and I appreciate what they're saying and what they're trying to do, but, you know, the Bible uses the term fear. I think it uses it for a good reason. I think it uses it because we often feel that. When we've sinned, we experience that fear. And the truth is, we don't really know, do we, what our substitutions might bring about in our own lives with the lives of others? And I think, I think, I hope you do too, I think we can trust God to speak for himself in this matter and all others. As I stand here before you and I say, it's part of a relationship, or at least it ought to be. So now I, I don't know uh, where you are right now. I, I wish I could sit down with each of you individually and say, "Well, what do you think about this? Tell me a little bit more. Help me to to hear what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Do you agree? Do you disagree?" But I can't do that, right? So, so what I've tried to do is I've tried to show us that there's a part of the relationship. I've tried to, to discuss it or help us to understand what it looks like, what it might feel like. But now I have to do something different, and I want to bring you along with me. I don't want to lose anybody. I don't want some of you sitting out there back here thinking about this, saying, well, I disagree with it. So I, I don't know how to help you except to say this. You can come talk to me. I, I'll make myself available. There are other people who would understand this truth too, and they could help you. You can do a study yourself. But all that takes place later. Right now we need to come back to the Scripture, and we're going to look at what the rest of the psalm says. And I want you to come with me on that. Okay, so, if you're stuck in this other place, you know write it on down, make a note to yourself, come see me, make your decision that you're going to follow up on it, but right now let's move forward, and we're going to look at what the rest of this passage says uh we can't spend very much time because we've spent so much time on this first thing but uh but uh We'll see what it has to say about the fear of the Lord and the will of God. So the psalm, as we've noticed, begins with this question, who then are those who fear the Lord? And the writer goes on uh, to answer that question in an unusual way, really. See, the writer doesn't answer the question the way we would normally expect him to answer it. For example, he doesn't say, the ones who fear the Lord are those who hate evil, or the ones who fear the Lord are those who who do good. Other scriptures do that. They really do do that very thing. But the author here doesn't. Instead, what he does is he tells us about the person who fears the Lord by telling us the result of that fear, by telling us Who such a person is by by telling us how God responds to such a one as that. And so the first thing he tells us about a person who fears the Lord is in the second line of verse 12 where he says he will instruct them in the way they should choose. Now I hope right now as you see that you understand this is where we're talking about the will of God. He will instruct them in the way that they should choose. This fear of God, this healthy part of a relationship, one aspect of our relationship of God is one of those things that begins to open the door to our understanding of God's will. God will show them the way they should choose. Now you need to understand something here. It's not because this person hasn't arrived at this because they 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 are particularly smart or intellectual or they have this great insight or anything like that. Rather it's the Lord who teaches them, who's instructing them. He doesn't merely tell them. He he instructs them. And the idea carries with it this ongoing relationship. And over and over again, we've said in discovering God's will, it's about this ongoing relationship. The idea is here is I'm teaching you, and I'll walk with you through this and I will show you the way you should go. Now that person is not a, a lock, you know. I mean, he or she still has to choose that that path it's the way he should choose uh, but you would think that someone in fear the Lord would walk that path but that fear brought them to the place where God revealed it but uh, that they said they could know that next step but that next step might be a big one and so it requires faith and maybe continued fear even right but it's where they should choose. God has revealed it to them because of that relationship. And so I've used this illustration before, but it's such a good one. You know, guy needs to travel across the Sahara Desert, right? So he finds the best guide he has recommended by everyone. In the morning of that journey, they get out and they walk outside the town, and there's this trackless waste of sand before him. And the guy says to the guide, where's the road? And the guide says, I'm the road. I'll show you the way. That's what our God is promising to us, to teach us and to guide us. And sometimes those things that he brings us to, sometimes they are those big things. We stand before them. They're like a desert in front of us. And we need to take that next step of faith. But our promise from our God is that he will. Show us the way. Part of that relationship of God, that loving him, listening to his word, being in obedience, being part of a church, but also that respect, that all no, use the word as it should. The fear that we have, because God is so much greater than we and we're still sinners, He will guide us, He will direct us in the way. And so He's telling us who that person is. He or she is someone who the Lord will instruct about His will. And then in the beginning of verse 13, continues in this same vein where uh, he's telling us who the person is by telling them what God will do for them. And so we read in the NIV, they will spend their days in prosperity, or I'm going to add and tell you what the NAS says, uh, his soul, and let's uh, adjust that a little bit, his or her soul will abide in prosperity, you know. I see, that word soul can be translated in a number of different ways. It can be translated as a inner person or the whole person or the self or, or a living being. And so the NIV really just elects to translate it the way it's kind of like a person. The person chooses, I mean, will spend their day in prosperity. And if you translate it that way, then the focus seems almost to be exclusively on this life, right? That is, we, we will experience good things in this life if... Uh we fear God. If we translate it the way the NAS does, it indicates the inner person will grow and be healthy. And the truth is probably both of those things are in view with, with the emphasis on the inner person. It's prosperity. And all the other things being equal, one would experience prosperity in this life too. And that word abide or spend their days, really, once again, it's this continual state of being. The overall descriptor of that person's life is that it's good. The promise is good will come even if bad happens. And the word prosperity, again, could be translated good, but but it's translated this way in all of the translations simply because it's this idea of this growing and abounding good that comes to us so my my grandmother doc who was one of those people that i feel like had just real faith that just had this genuine uh, impact and influence on lots of people because she loved jesus um would tell you if you sat down and talked with her that she never had a hard life and yet this is a woman who grew was extremely poor who started a small business to help with the income and it and it failed and um Uh, whose house burnt down and there was no insurance, whose entire life savings was in that house and burnt up with it, Who, who in her journal talks about after having children not being able to get out of bed and stand up. but Rather, she would roll out of bed and crawl on her hands and knees into the kitchen to put wood into the cook stove until she could pull herself up to cook for the family. And she did that day after day after day many times. And yet, when you would sit down and talk with her, she would say, I've never had it hard. You see, for her, God had done nothing but good in her life. And that's what the psalmist is telling us here, that we will abide, our soul, our inner being will abide in prosperity. Maybe we'll enjoy some good things in this life. But whether we do or not, our soul will. And then in the second part of it, it says there are descendants Will inherit the land, and and again, that's an Old Testament formula, simply meaning that we will be blessed, and that descendants includes your children and grandchildren, but it goes on before that. So, I don't know about you, but every time I read something like that, right, it's kind of exciting to me because I have kids, <laughs> and I know they're not here yet, but the day's coming that they're going to have kids, and I love my children and i want good for them and here's one of those promises it says that as i'm living right and walking with god that becomes a blessing to those who follow me right not just my children but my grandchildren and then right on down reminds me of that passage in the old testament where it says. for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And you know, when you understand that passage properly, what we're telling what that passage tells us is that God limits the effects of our sin to three or four generations, but there is no limit to his blessing. For those who follow him and all those who fear God, not only bring blessing to themselves, but also all of their children. So I don't know. How do you picture it? You might picture it as like a purchasing, having this opportunity to purchase a huge tract of land. Maybe on the water, right? So this week I went and visited Pauline Doolin in the nursing home, and she was telling us, she says, I grew up, I, I was poor. We were P-O-O-R, poor is what she said. And, and and she was married, and it was told about this house, and they went and bought this house for $5,000, and it was on the water, right? <laughs> Jesus, in those days, the poor people lived on the water. Well, something like that, you think about being able to buy this big tract of land on the water, right? And then all of your children get to him and use it. And it's big enough that their children get to use it, and big enough that their children get to use it. You see, that, that blessing that comes upon you from your fear of God, that healthy relationship, it extends to your children and their descendants. And then finally, in the last passage here, it says that those who fear the Lord, what God does for them who fear him is, well, let's read the first part. The Lord confides in those who fear in him. I love that translation. I love that translation of the the NIV right there. He confides in it. It indicates this intimacy, this closeness, this, this being brought kind of into an inner circle, right? So I don't know how you are i don 't just confide to a stranger on the street, When I confide to someone it's someone I trust someone who 's close to me, someone who I feel like I can allow this thing out and share and Here we have this 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 statement that God confides in us the n a s uses the word secret uh, uh, the secret of the Lord is made known to them, and again you don 't let secrets known except to close people and of course, God has, doesn't have secrets except that, uh, I mean, he does, but not because he wants to hide them, but because people can only know them as they come to know him. Then, uh, and uh, the New Living Translation uh, tries to capture the meaning here by saying that the Lord is a friend to all of those. And it, again, it captures that idea of intimacy and confiding. Ever since i read that, I've wanted that. don't you you want that intimacy? I mean, with God? I was talking to somebody today. You you know, men desire intimacy. They don't talk about it. They don't act like it, but they do. There is this need in our souls. And what what happens is is there's, there's people that recognize that. Now, I don't want to be negative, but sometimes I think they kind of, well, they take advantage of it. They, they write these book series and stuff to try to get men to it. And there's good stuff in it. Don't misunderstand me. When you find one series after another series after another series, it's not the book they need. It's the intimacy that they need. And not just with one another, but we need it with God. And when we have that right relationship with him which includes this element of understanding that he is bigger than we are, that our sin is a horrible thing that we never get away with, then he confides in us and he brings us into that inner circle. And then the second part of the verse, he makes his covenant known to them. And, of course, that word covenant, there's a big word in it. It's got a, a, a lot of history attached with it. But for us, let's just realize that it means that we have a relationship with God. And that relationship that we have with God is not ours by right. It's ours only by his grace. And so we're in a relationship with him, but we're also in a relationship with other people. We're we're in a relationship with people inside the covenant and there's a different kind of relationship we have with those outside the covenant, but it's relationship. And there are promises and requirements and consequences that go that are associated with this. And what God is saying is, is that relationship with him and with his people, that he's going to make that known. And that's not just understanding the bare bones of the structure, but really understanding it. You see, there are people who could, for instance, delineate the laws and uh, and regulations of the Old Testament and quote verses of Scripture to you. They could go into great detail about the details, but they don't really understand it. But knowing it means understanding. It means not just checking things off the list, but, but seeing how my life fits into it and how other people's lives fit into it. It's, it's, a, it's a real knowledge about God and our relationship with him and with others. And God is the one who declares that and reveals that to us. There's a really cool passage in, in um, uh, The Lord of the Rings. You know, Pippin was one of the hobbits that went uh, with Frodo, right, to try to get rid of the ring. And at some point, he... Uh, he um, puts himself in the service of the Lord Denethor, right? And so he becomes a sword of Denethor, the Lord. And in that passage, uh, the Lord says, take this man, Miss Pippin, this hobbit, and teach him the lower passwords. And, and you get this picture there of someone who has now been brought from the outside into the inner circle. May not be all the way in. He doesn't know the higher password, but he knows the lower passwords. And that's what God does for us. He brings us from the outside, and he brings us in so that we know his covenant. We're no longer out there, we're inside. And that's all of that is a result of our relationship with God that includes this element that we sometimes forget or ignore or afraid to look at or don't know how to talk about of fearing God. And when we have that relationship right, that's how God reveals his will to us. I've said it before, I say it again. it's It's not like finding a fortune cookie. It's not like he gives you a destination on the map and and you try to figure out how to get there. It's not that you take this word and try to dig through it to figure out what he wants for you. He reveals his will to you in relationship. He speaks his word to you in relationship, in relationship to the church, in obedience to him, as you love him and as you love others. And as you fear him, as you ought in this life, until perfect love does indeed cast out all fear. So, if you want to know what God's will is, that's the way you learn it. Not simple, not hard just is, and it is the only way. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I know that uh, we've looked at a really intriguing portion of Scripture, and uh, I know that some of the things we've talked about are really hard for us to understand. We We don't live in this constant state of fear of you, and I know that we shouldn't. But uh, we also sometimes, Lord, forget that it is part of that relationship. So I pray that you help us open our hearts and our minds to that truth and, and help us, Lord, to walk with you every day of our lives. And then if we do that, we'll never miss your will for us. You'll be revealing it each and every day, step by step and even moment by moment. For that we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.